This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to David Broder. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll start again. I, I, I kind of, I think, mispronounced him. Is it Broder or? Yeah, yeah. Broder, yeah. I'll start again. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to David Broder. <clears throat> David uh, is a historian of the Italian far right. He's a regular contributor to the New Statement and Internazionale. If I'm pronouncing the name of this journal correctly, but I'll let David. Yeah, but <laughs> cool. Thank you. And he writes about Italian politics as well as um, editor for Jacobian. And uh, today he's here to talk to us about a book he published with uh, Pluto Press in 2023 called Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. David, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, Mateza. Thanks for having me on. Right. Uh, David, before you start, can you please tell our listeners a little about yourself? What, what, uh, what is your field of expertise and more importantly, how you became interested in um, in studying Italian fascism? Uh, well, I first, um, as you may have guessed from my accent, I'm English and not Italian, uh, but I moved to uh, Italy uh, in 2011 um, and I did my PhD uh, on the anti-fascist resistance uh, of World War II in Rome. And while I was living in Rome, I started to write more about uh, contemporary Italian politics, uh, including for some of the publications you mentioned, um, and uh, I, yeah, as part of my work, I uh, even for my PhD, I was looking at the uh, the history of Italian fascism, uh, and of course, you know, in a moment in which a lot of people are talking about, you know, is there a new fascism? Uh, how do we talk about the uh, so-called populist right or or far right? Uh, and so, through my uh, through my journalism, I was uh, I've been led sort of more and more to. Uh, talk about and indeed research uh, the far right. Uh, so uh, this uh, book uh, is a kind of culmination uh, of that, or, or we might say of my uh, decade or so so far, uh, looking at the uh, the far right uh, in Italy. Um, yeah. 
I was really fascinated with the title of your book, and I'm guessing uh, a lot of other um, uh, readers uh, feel the same. Mussolini's grandchildren. What, what do you mean by this title? Can you broadly tell us this genealogy that you draw from Mussolini all the way to um, Contemporary Brothers of Italy? That's the name of the party, but I can't pronounce the Italian one, so I'll <laughs> leave it to you. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, it, a little like I just said, I mean, the we have all this discussion, you know, is Donald Trump a fascist or is there a fascist movement? Uh, is Jair Bolsonaro? Uh, how about Marine Le Pen? Or uh, even the far right in Israel, you know, how do we how do we connect these contemporary phenomena to historical fascism? Uh, and of course, those discussions often kind of run aground on this question of, you know, um, are are they really re reproducing the political forms of the 1930s in terms of things like mass mobilization, violence, the cult of violence, uh, counter revolution against the workers' movement? Um, so why I think the uh, Italian case is uh, an interesting way of looking at this, uh, not just because, you know, I uh, am someone who's lived in Italy and I'm obsessed with Italian uh, issues, uh, but rather that this party, this uh, political tradition has actually persisted over time. It's not the world of the 1930s sort of arriving back in the present. You know, there's these films, like there's one called uh, Look Who's Back, which is about Hitler. Or in Italy, there's one called uh, I Am Back, which is about Mussolini. And in each case, the idea is they kind of land from space in the present and they find that they're still popular. Um, I think this is a quite common view we have of uh, the far right, this kind of um, this monster from the past that is suddenly reappeared in the present. Um, so what I'm arguing instead is that this is a political tradition uh, that has a continuity a genealogy in the sense that you know, the old fascist party reconstituted itself in 1946 uh, as the Italian social movement. Uh, and that uh, was an openly fascist party, which endured throughout post-war history, uh, which Giorgia Milani herself joined in 1992, and which today's Fratelli d'Italia is the continuator of. Um, so in that sense, they really are the heirs to historical fascism. There's a direct organizational continuity. At the same time, the book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren, not the clones of Mussolini. Yeah. The way they act politically and the world they live in has changed uh, over the generations of post-war Italian public life. Uh, a lot of the kind of assumptions uh, or the sort of parameters of politics have changed, and Fratelli d'Italia reflect that. So on the one hand, you know, they defend parts of the history of their fascist forefathers, but we should also recognize that it's not just a recreation of the past. So, for example, um, the utopian and transformative horizon of fascism, the idea of modeling the new man uh, and of the molding of the national community through state action is largely missing from the contemporary far right. Uh, similarly, things like the cult of violence, um, the open disregard for democracy characteristic of historical fascism, um, you know, those are no longer parts of their, um, say, mental framework. So I think what we actually see instead is a kind of fusion of the historical fascist tradition, uh, its history, uh, its anti-communism, 
its ethnic conception of citizenship. So some of these elements, but they're also kind of combined with um, um, some of the assumptions of modern liberal democracy and indeed free market capitalism. Um, so, of course, the the idea of generations might seem a little uh, imprecise. You know, they're not neatly um, um, they're, they're not so sort of neatly delimited or circumscribed. You know, who belongs to one generation or another. Uh, but I think that looking at the post-war history of uh, Italian neo-fascism, uh, we can think generationally in the sense of uh, what political experiences have leaders, have militants had um, that shape their attitudes, what they're doing. Uh, the MSI, the post-war neo-fascist party, was set up in 1946 by men who had participated in the regime and who had fought to the last against Nazi Germany. Um, those leaders are dead now, uh, but we still have some of the leaders from the generation of the 1960s and 1970s. So an era of political terrorism, of very large scale class and social conflict in Italy, uh, and indeed an era when the far right uh, openly supported far right dictatorships in the, elsewhere in the Mediterranean and in Latin America. Uh, then uh, if we get to the generation uh, which I call the grandchildren, which are uh, of course, some of the literal grandchildren of Mussolini, biological grandchildren, uh, but also people like Giorgio Milani, you know, people who grow up politically at this kind of moment of the end of history, the fall of their old communist opponent, uh, but also a general uh, lowering of um, political violence and of social conflict. Uh, so uh, all that to say that uh, what this book is trying to grapple with is the fact that there is a continuity of the fascist tradition, uh, but it hasn't stayed the same. Uh, it's constantly adapted to the times it, it finds itself in. And I think that's the uh, its strength uh, as a political movement uh, in Italy today is that this kind of activist hardcore has persisted through long defeats and is now in a sort of has now uh, completed its sort of long march out of marginalization. Uh, the book is, in a sense, a story of the success of the uh, rehabilitation uh, of this political camp. Uh, it was a great explanation. And, and I really like the point you brought up at the beginning that are these right-wing parties around the world really fascist or not? Because some people just throw the word randomly around. Now, the question I have used a term called post-fascism in your book. Is that what you mean by post-fascism, these new maybe right-wing uh, parties, or there's a different definition to this uh, post-fascism? Well, in my case, I use the word post-fascism, particularly to talk about Fratelli d'Italia, in the sense that it actually claims to have overcome its fascist past. So they use these very strange forms of words, kind of like we've consigned the regime to history, that fascism is in the past, uh, as I said, that they've transcended it, but it's not really a kind of rejection or a critical investigation of fascism. It's really a kind of an overcoming of the tradition, but which merges elements of it into a sort of new mix. You know, people like Giorgio Milani call themselves conservatives. Uh, some people say national conservatives, but really what they've done is they've kind of hybridized parts of a specifically fascist tradition uh, with other parts of conservative or even liberal uh, thought. 
um, so in my case, of course, because there's this genealogy, because there's the um, the sort of historical influence, and because arguments around identity and memory culture in Italy are very closely connected to the to the the, the historical fascist regime, uh, it's easy to talk about post-fascism uh, because, of course, we can say you know these are people who come from a explicitly fascist background. Now they say they've gone beyond it, but they kind of maintain lots of ties to it. Um, the, the kind of critical um, uh, argument that could be raised, though, is that um, whether the idea of post-fascism is actually also useful for these other phenomena like Trump, Bolsonaro, and so on. Um, so, of course, there's a famous essay on, on post-fascism by uh, the late uh, Hungarian scholar uh, G.M. Tamas. Um, also, of course, the term is used by um, Enzo Traverso, uh, the uh, the Italian historian. Um, and they kind of use the term post-fascism uh, to talk also about these other phenomena we see internationally, right? It's that you know, people like Trump or uh, Bolsonaro, Le Pen, Orban, and so on, they have a uh, anti-democratic, anti-communist, uh, ethnic conception of politics, but it also doesn't take up quite the historical forms of fascism, uh, and nor do they kind of nor do they explicitly associate themselves with that tradition. And of course, you know, someone like Trump isn't actually sort of socialized in fascist subculture. You know, didn't have his political formation by being in a fascist youth group. In the way that Meloni did, um, so clearly there are there are very important uh, biographical and historical differences between these national cases. Nonetheless, I think that the the merit of the term post-fascism uh, is that it's in a way it's able to group these phenomena together and see the way in which they are in fact uh, converging. So you know, even though Meloni comes from a fascist background, whereas Trump, you know, used to be a Democrat. If we look at the kind of conversations they're having at events like uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Ac uh, Action Conference in the United States, if we look at ideas like Great Replacement Theory, which doesn't come from a specifically uh, fascist tradition, but is able to unite various parts of the uh, the, the sort of new far right internationally, um, then I think then I think we see this uh, a, a kind of convergence at the level of ideas. But then the kind of historical argument about, you know, well, we're not seeing the return of sort of militias and so on, uh, or at least not on a truly mass scale and certainly not really in Italy. Um, I, I think that the, the term post-fascism, uh, its quality is that it can hold those things together. Uh, admittedly, of course, it should be said that the, the limitation of the term post-fascism, in particular in political um, polemic or indeed in kind of journalistic accounts, is that in effect it's insinuating a connection to fascism um so it, it has a kind of strong critical charge inherent within it which means that kind of you know when i'm on debates in italy uh in in the press or on tv and i i use this sort of post-fascism category it basically just gets reduced to well you're calling them fascists because of course you're kind of bringing up uh this uh controversial connection uh, and indeed a history which, uh, although Fratelli d'Italia do themselves talk about it quite a lot, they also 
but very uh, resistant to any kind of critical scrutiny uh, of it. And uh, there was another question that I had about uh, about Brothers of Italy, but I'll ask you later towards the end of the um, the interview. But I, I really like that the anecdote that you start the book with what happens in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, in the city of Trist, and um, you, and the Brothers of uh, Italy, that the way they draw this. Um, that draw kind of a parallel between besieged national identity, Italian identity, and also the history of that city, Tris. Can you talk about that uh, uh, part of the book, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the 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 reference you make is that the in twenty seventeen, Fratelli d'Italia held its or Brothers of Italy held its uh, conference in Trieste, which is the city that's right on the far northeastern corner of Italy uh, and is almost totally surrounded by uh, Slovenia. Um, in um, Historically, it's a city that's changed hands between lots of different states. Up till World War I, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, Italy conquered it at the end of the war. Um, but uh, in World War II, when Italy invaded Yugoslavia, uh, and then lost the war, uh, this prompted Yugoslav troops to come into Trieste, uh, as well as the uh, the other Western allies. And then there was a period after World War II where Trieste was a kind of independent territory and con very contested. Um, so in the kind of historical myths of Italian nationalism, it's always been this, um, th this kind of longed for city that has to be reconquered in order to make Italy uh, truly united. Uh, historically, and certainly before World War One, it was actually very uh, multi-ethnic, and indeed the broader region uh, around it, its kind of hinterland, actually had kind of majority uh, Slavic populations. So over the over the twentieth century, uh, there's many. Uh, you know, I won't go that deeply into it, but there there is many moments of a very large scale population movements, uh, including ones driven by um, nationalist and ethnic violence. So for not just for the right, but for a long uh, Italian nationalist and so-called irredentist tradition, Trieste has been a, a sort of central focus. The idea of, you know, this city is, you know, by conquering that, by defending that, we are protecting Italy itself. And the Fratelli d'Italia conference document I mention um, in the book sort of associates this with uh, the defense of the borders against immigrants today. So we have this story of uh, just as in World War I and then at the end of World War II, uh, Italians fought to keep Trieste Italian. Uh, so too today is Fratelli d'Italia fighting to defend the borders to stop Italians being ethnically substituted by blacks and Muslims who are being uh, sent by uh, the plotters of the Great Replacement, uh, you know, the the orchestrated by you know Marxists and George Soros and and, and so on. Um, mm. So this story has, I think, a couple of uh, important elements for understanding Fratelli d'Italia politically. One of which is that it reduces both world wars uh, and indeed particularly world war ii to a question of defending italian sovereignty so there's no actual reference 
you know, in this document I mentioned, to um, Italian fascism or to the invasion of Yugoslavia that it mounted, right? Instead, we have the story just from the other side, which is the Italian victims of Yugoslav partisans. Uh, and there's this uh, big uh, focus on the right, uh, the so-called Feuerbeer killings. Uh, Feuerbeer are sinkholes in the ground in this region. And at the end of World War II, after the armistice, Yugoslav partisans killed uh, many hundreds and probably in the low thousands of uh, Italians. Uh, on the far right, it's often said that this was genocide and ethnic cleansing. Uh, historians tend to, to tend to agree that really it's much more to do with the struggle for political power. Most of the victims are like you know fascist uh, state officials or policemen or or soldiers, uh, this kind of thing. Um, but this has become a big like victim complex for uh, the far right, and it's something they've very successfully uh, reframed historical memory around in the last couple of decades. Uh, to to put it in simple terms, uh, today the Holocaust Memorial Day in Italy is paired with a separate Memorial Day for uh, the victims of the Feuerbeer killings. Uh, so it, the Italian state commemorates both the Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust and Italians who were murdered by Yugoslav partisans. Uh, many local councils will commemorate the two days uh, jointly, uh, Matteo Salvini, who's the deputy prime minister, has often said, you know, from Auschwitz to the Feuerbeer, you know, from the Jews who were murdered to the Italians who were murdered, there are no Serie A and Serie B victims. So referring to the football league. So he's saying, really, you know, we should remember all genocides, both those perpetrated by Italians and those perpetrated against Italians. So mm. This is obviously a very offensive and, and drastically reductionist vision of World War II history. Uh, it removes the responsibility for uh, uh, the Italian responsibility in bringing war to uh, the borderlands, to Yugoslavia. Uh, it ignores other genocides and uh, mass killings perpetrated by Italians. And uh, it reduces the the victims of the Yugoslav partisans to pure kind of innocence, a bit like how we imagine uh, Jews being uh, slaughtered uh, industrially in the Holocaust. Um, but I think like what in terms of the the, the kind of frames for this, the, the ways of talking about uh, history, it's actually very much kind of borrowed from the memory culture of countries like Hungary and Poland and Lithuania, um, where they sort of seek to or the the sort of ruling right-wing forces in those countries uh, although not only uh, on the political right um seek to tell the their 20th century history as you know we are a nation that wanted its independence but was crushed between twin totalitarianisms both nazis and communists um so you know, if we think of the, you know, for example, the kind of museums in in cities like, uh, you know, the 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 Terror Museum in in Budapest and so on, you know, they tell this story where basically Hungarians are innocents; they're just caught between these two totalitarianisms. And you know, in Italy, the right has tried and quite successfully uh, to to reproduce that, so that uh, there's this idea of Italians as pure victims. 
uh, indeed the, the Italian complicity in, in the Holocaust or the crimes of Italian fascism are kind of erased and reduced to a, a question of you know, the, the, the Nazis kind of imposing uh, this on Italy. And we have just ordinary Italians caught between totalitarianisms. And of course, the point of this is not to uh, criticize or uh, critically expose uh, fascism or Nazism, but rather uh, it has an anti-communist purpose. Uh, communists uh, were a leading force in the resistance in World War II. Uh, communists helped to write Italy's post-war constitution. Uh, Italians often talk about this idea of the, the anti-fascist state and its anti-fascist constitution. And basically the political right is trying to uh, remove all that and trying to replace uh, anti-fascism uh, with a unity which is based on ethnicity, Italianness, uh, the indivisibility of the nation uh, faced with the foreigners who try to attack its borders. Um, so uh, I think that the 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 story of the borderlands uh, plays a lot. Uh, you know, often when when you know, when I'm talking about the sort of fascist past of Fratelli d'Italia. People say, well, you know, this is just history or, or an attitude towards events of 80 years ago. So does it really matter? Uh, but of course, really, it's very important in terms of uh, shaping uh, national identity and of sort of finding a place for Italian nationalism uh, within kind of contemporary uh, identity politics, uh, in particular through the focus on the idea of, of victimhood uh, and that Italians were not protagonists of the 20th century, but uh, but merely caught between uh, Nazis and communists. And that was a great explanation as how they kind of kind of manipulate the history of the Second World War. Uh, I guess it's one of the common common uh, features of any fascist government to to manipulate history to create a narrative that that is more uh, appealing to their side of the story. Um, the, the, uh, I have also a question about this this party, the Brothers of Italy. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the beginning. You talked you talked a little about their relations with uh, Italian social movement or MSI. Uh, it would be great if you could kind of expand on that and also tell us how this party managed to maintain itself even in post-war Italy. And in the book, you also talk about their connections with dictators around the world in 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 um, southern in in Latin America. So it would be great if you could talk about these points as well. Mm -hmm. Well, the MSI was created in 1946 by men who had taken part in Mussolini's regime and indeed fought the last together with Nazi Germany. You know, had fought right up until April 1945. Uh, and, you know, while the resistance won, while there was the proclamation of an anti-fascist constitution, uh, all of the people who had been uh, active fascists uh, didn't just disappear. Of course, it's true that lots of people who'd been fascists or had uh, various levels of complicity in the regime or its armed forces and so on, uh, reinvented themselves politically or withdrew from politics uh, altogether or withdrew from the electoral arena at least. Uh, but you know some people like Giorgio Mirante, Milani's political hero, who'd been uh, chief of staff at the culture ministry during the uh, Salah Republic, the final uh, Mussolinian regime, 
or uh, Pino Romualdi, who was the deputy leader of the uh, Republican Fascist Party in 1944 to five. You know, these were leading cadres of the regime who managed to survive the war and evaded uh, indictment or capture. And they decided to recreate a fascist party. Um, The post-war Italian constitution uh, does actually forbid the recreation of the fascist party uh, but the bounds of this uh this this sort of provision have always been very contested uh, in general the uh, law has tended to be applied to um to violent conspiracies rather than to the dis- dissemination of fascist ideas per se and the msi uh, was a dom a predominantly uh, electoral party uh, one that uh, also sought to, uh, as the leader Giorgio Amarante put it, to, to be a party of fascists in a democracy. So, to some to some extent, they kind of recognised that they had lost. Uh, they took up this slogan of neither reneging on the regime nor seeking to restore it. Uh, so they set themselves uh, a more limited uh, set of uh, ambitions. Um, and although there's many internal factions and divisions I could go into, uh, historically, the predominant one was to try and make the MSI into a strong uh, rearguard against communism, and in particular against the Italian Communist Party, which was the you know a, a really mass party, the second biggest force in post-war Italian democracy. Um, so in the book, I kind of talk about uh, the various ways in which the MSI uh, tried to find other allies, tried Christian Democrats or conservatives. Uh, there were those within the party uh, who who, who uh, were involved in more kind of military uh, uh, initiatives, uh, coup plotting and so on. Uh, but broadly, what the MSI sought to do was to build up a, uh, a, a party, including through electoral means, uh, that could be the sort of hard edge of an anti-communist anti-communist mobilization uh, in Italy. Um, of course, the first generation of militants are people who had actually fought uh, against uh, the British and Americans, you know, when they invaded Italy in 1943. Uh, but even in 1951, uh, the MSI turned to support for NATO uh, and basically sought to foster. Uh, contacts uh, with uh, the U.S. uh, embassy in Italy, and in particular uh, with the uh, right wing of the Republican Party in the United States. Um, Sometimes when I uh, publish articles about Italy on Jacobin, lots of people in the comments kind of say, uh, no matter what the article is specifically about, lots of people say, well, why don't you talk about Operation Gladio? You know, why don't you talk about the U.S. efforts to undermine Italian democracy together with these fascists? Uh, but I think there's a, it, you know, it's true, of course, that um, many behind the scenes operations were in the works. Many preparations were made to resist a potential communist victory in Italy. Uh, but also, uh, of course, uh, there was a uh, uh, a long series of um, terrorist attacks and military operations in which NATO and the United States uh, government were involved. Uh, nonetheless, I think that it's also true that the MSI probably had an exaggerated view of their own usefulness 
to the United States as a as a sort of junior ally. Um, the the real sort of web of alliances and so on, which uh, United States governments relied on uh, to resist communism in Italy, uh, involved a much broader array of forces. There's much more of a kind of uh, element of kind of uh, reformist and social democratic uh, efforts to to sort of try and um, 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 to try and um, to provide a attractive vision of uh, national development in Italy, which isn't just reducible to um, sort of naked uh, repression or sort of fascist takeover. Uh, the MSI, uh, as you refer to in the question, was, however, a great admirer of regimes such as uh, Franco in Spain, uh, the colonel's dictatorship in Greece, uh, the uh, Portuguese dictatorship, uh, and a whole host of regimes in Latin America. Uh, indeed, the the regimes such as such as those, uh, or you know, to take just one example, Pinochet in uh, Chile. Um, you know, the MSI looked at those examples and thought, well, yes, you know, these are uh, cases where, faced with the communist threat, um, the um, the West, the United States anti-communists have acted to save uh, liberty from communism by imposing an authoritarian regime. And their, I think their mindset in that era was very much that of a, a, a very reactionary and rep repressive one of recreating in Italy something like those um, regimes, uh, which of course wasn't necessarily attractive even to anti-communist uh, sections of Italian society in the kind of post-war era uh, where you know Italy was enjoying very strong economic growth, a uh, very powerful drive to social liberalization, had a very powerful workers movement. So it's far from sort of uh, far from necessarily the case that that uh, even uh, non or anti-communist forces wanted to recreate something like Chile in Italy. Um, so apart from though the the sort of dimension of, of sort of admiring the uh, uh, anti-communism of these authoritarian regimes or sort of or sort of dreaming that they too would one day be able to murder their political opponents, um, there's also a dimension of their relationship with Latin America, which is uh, to do with um, sort of material networks of solidarity uh in the sense of uh for example in the immediate post-war years uh you know in the development of the far right internationally uh as sort of Matteo Albanese writes about you have this effort to uh get uh fascists who are on the run you know to get them to protective Latin American countries uh not only uh far right dictatorships uh, but also countries such as uh, Peron's Argentina. And, you know, right up until the 1970s, uh, we see this, uh, indeed the 80s, we see the continuation of this um, exfiltration of fascist personnel from Europe, people involved in terrorist groups, uh, to friendly states in Latin America. Uh, of course, the most uh, striking example is Stefano Della Chiaia, uh, the uh, uh, founder of um, Avanguardia Nazionale in Italy, uh, a terrorist group, uh, but who then um, went to uh, Latin America 
uh, and uh, directly participated in the uh, Bolivian secret services uh, in their repression and murder of of communists. So I think in this in this era of the of the kind of sixties and seventies, uh, there was uh, strong ties between uh, the MSI and these regimes, and I think uh, in a sense uh, that provided some of the kind of um, you might always almost say uh, political hope uh, for these forces that that you know that they too would be able to uh, mount some sort of authoritarian uh, takeover in Italy. That said, uh, you know the MSI, while it sort of endured through all this period, you know it lasted um, up until the early 1990s uh, as a as a party uh, in in Italy, um, but. You know, at the level of you know, mass organization or electoral success, the results are very poor. Uh, you know, now we're accustomed in lots of European countries to far right parties getting twenty or thirty percent of the vote. Uh, the MSI uh, uh, di didn't even reach ten percent, um, and uh, most of the time, uh, and. Uh, you know, its efforts to integrate itself into national government or to become a real uh, political force um, met a lot of limits. In 1960, there was a Christian Democrat government that relied on MSI votes in parliament. Uh, and this uh, short, this even informal um, sort of external support for a Christian Democrat government actually produced a huge backlash a very strong social movement, general strikes in several cities, uh, including because of the plans to hold the MSI Congress in, in Genoa, a city with a strong anti-fascist tradition. Um, so actually what we, so, or what, what you know, I was too young, but <laughs> uh, but but what, what happened when the MS, when attempts were made to legitimize the MSI, to bring it into the sort of space of respectable government parties, is that it produced this very strong, uh, anti-fascist uh, reaction against it and that's something that it never overcame uh it was only in the uh in the early 1990s um after the collapse of the old uh parties uh after the collapse of the soviet union and of the communist party after the arrival of silvio berlusconi uh as a, a sort of um you know as is often said, it's an early version of Trump in Italy, uh, sort of revolutionizing the party system. It was then that the MSI was finally brought into a sort of broad uh, right-wing coalition. Uh, in 1994, the MSI entered government for the first time as a junior partner to Berlusconi. And you know that era, of course, is also the same one, as I mentioned before, that Giorgio Milani is getting politically active, so on the one hand, we have the MSI uh, in government, but it's also a moment of where, you know, sort of class uh, mobilization, where social conflict, uh, where political violence in particular have already reduced significantly. And in the 1990s, uh, the MSI also begins this kind of uh, renewal process uh, where it becomes, uh, where it starts to call itself a post-fascist party, where it tries to uh, take on a kind of conservative uh, identity instead under the leadership of Gianfranco Fini. So, you know, I think often when we talk about the, you know, when particularly when Milani was about to be elected, 
we have this idea of this uh, sudden breakthrough by the far right, but really it's already in the 1990s that the key changes are happening. It, it's then that the anti-fascist barrier uh, collapses uh, because on the right, there's no longer anyone willing to uh, maintain it. And the, the kind of reaction against the MSI being integrated into government is uh, far weaker in the 90s than than in the 60s. So it so it's kind of mainstreaming uh, really um, takes off in, in that moment. And when they entered the government, did they have to sort of hide or maybe reconfigure or change their fascist ideology to to be more accepted into uh, you know European Union? Well, when they were when uh, when the MSI were first integrated into government, um, there was a lot of, kind of international uh, surprise and alarm. Uh, so the first time that the um, an MSI minister attended a European Union uh, meetup in Brussels, a meetup of ministers from member states, uh, his Belgian uh, counterpart, the deputy prime minister of Belgium, Elio Di Rupo, um, refused to shake his hand and sort of said, well, there's no political dealings with fascists. Um, and I think that you know, now we wouldn't see that kind of gesture because they've become so normalized. Um, it's certainly true that under Feeney's leadership, Gianfranco Feeney, the sort of, uh, final leader of the MSI, uh, he mounts this kind of uh, change process uh, which uh, aims to change the identity of the party. So MSI is renamed Alianza Nazionale, uh, National Alliance. Uh, he talks of this idea of making the M uh, the old MSI into something like the US Republican Party or the Spanish uh, Partido Popular, a kind of normal, so-called uh, broad right-wing party, uh, which includes the MSI tradition, uh, but isn't limited to that. Um, Feeney makes uh, a considerable uh, effort to um, both change the image of the party externally, while also not sort of pissing off his own uh, militants too much. Uh, in particular, this takes the form of a series of uh, condemnations of specific uh, actions of the uh, historical fascist regime, uh, but without rejecting the political tradition of fascism as such, certainly at least in the in the 90s and, and early 2000s. So, for example, the you know, statements such as that, uh, you know, the, one of the more famous is in 2003, uh, Gianfranco Fini, uh, the, uh, the leader, visited Israel and he said that uh, everything that led to the Holocaust was uh, the absolute evil. Uh, his words were were misrepresented in Italian media, and it's become uh, as as him having said that fascism is is itself the absolute evil. So, what's at issue there is that the the kind of dominant strategy adopted by these by by this kind of renewal effort is in fact to try and separate out those things. Right? It's to say, well, Italian fascism wasn't all bad. Uh, Mussolini did good things too. Uh, in particular, for instance, uh, the idea that up until 1938, uh, fascism was going well, uh, but then Mussolini uh, subordinated Italy to alliance with Hitler, and that the anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and of course, the ultimate military defeat, all stemmed from that. So 
I think what we see in the party is a very loud and and sort of deliberately um, um, sort of publicly displayed um, distancing of itself from fascism by condemning certain specific actions uh, and indeed important ones like Italian participation in the Holocaust, uh, but without a real rejection of the political tradition of the MSI or fascist uh, ideas as such. Uh, so instead we have this kind of um, a, a softened and prettified vision of certain aspects of fascism, uh, in particular by purging it of its association with uh, Nazi Germany. Um, so we have these figures like, for example, Gabriele D'Annunzio or uh, Giovanni Gentile, uh, some of the sort of ideologues of, 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 of fascism, sometimes at odds with Mussolini, um, in order to, to um, build this political tradition that kind of includes fascism, but isn't limited to it and is able to criticize aspects of it. Um, whether this was really accepted by militants in the party or whether they just saw it as a kind of marketing tool uh, is harder to say. Uh, there's a political scientist called Piero Ignazzi who conducted some surveys of uh, the sort of opinions of, of people attending party congresses. And basically the, the dominant opinion found is was that uh, fascism uh, was necessary as a rearguard action against communism. Uh, and that the regime did good things too. Um, Fini actually eventually entered into conflict uh, with uh, many other figures in the party uh, because of the extent to which he um, began to, to distance himself from fascism. Uh, the speech in Israel I mentioned actually prompted Alessandra Mussolini, uh, the dictator's granddaughter, to quit the party. Uh, and in uh, 20. Uh, uh, 10, uh, there was a kind of internal split in this uh, milieu. Uh, and in uh, 2012, Fratelli d'Italia was kind of re-founded, uh, reclaiming the old MSI tradition and has a much more ambiguous uh, relationship to the fascist past, even than Fini uh, had proposed. Um, where Fini, let's say, uh, uh, someone who'd grown up politically in the 60s and 70s, in the time of kind of political violence, you know, sort of one generation after the war, uh, he had said, you know, we need to distance ourselves from the crimes of fascism, uh, that we need to recognize the the um, that the resistance was on the right side in fighting against uh, the uh, in fighting for the restoration of democracy. So he had this kind of thing of, well, we're against uh, communism. Uh, but we're against fascist dictatorship too. Um, whereas Fratelli d'Italia doesn't really say those things. It, it kind of says more like, well, you know, we no longer need to apologize. That's all in the past. Uh, and in in Milani's case in particular, often brings out this refrain, which is, you know, well, how can I uh, apologize for things that happened before I was even born? So I think in the, in the, um, in each case, what we actually see is a kind of um, a, a, an ever-shifting definition of what fascism actually is. If for the post-war leaders of the MSI, they might say, well, uh, fascism isn't just the dictatorship, isn't just the historical regime, 
but rather is a, a, a set of ideas, uh, a tradition, a uh, political community. Uh, when Meloni is accused of ties to fascism, she tends to um, to, lim to kind of limit the idea of fascism to just the regime. So she says, well, I have nothing to do with the regime. But in turn, the, the tradition of the MSI is kind of uh, rehabilitated. Uh, so Meloni often refers to the post-war MSI as the tradition of the Italian democratic uh, right wing. Uh, so and sort of doesn't call it a, a fascist party, even though it did explicitly call itself uh, a fascist party uh, right up until the early uh, 1990s. Um, so in the current kind of discourse of the, the leads of the party and the government, uh, we see this kind of constant uh, evasiveness about this fascist uh, relationship, uh, this fronting of, well, of course, we condemn anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, but we no longer need to apologize for the fascist past, uh, while also uh, sort of saving uh, certain elements of the fascist tradition. So some of the ideologues, uh, some of the uh, ideas, uh, things like uh, the, uh, you know, commemorating the victims of Yugoslav partisans or honoring those who, who died fighting in the Soviet Union and this kind of thing. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, a, a softening of, of the historical record of fascism, uh, but it's also very inconsistent and, and full of holes. It's a kind of constitutively uh, evasive uh, way of talking, and its aim is to turn the critical spotlight not on fascism, but on anti-fascism, to say that communist crimes are worse, uh, that the fascists were fighting against an enemy who planned a, an even more brutal and totalitarian uh, dictatorship. Uh, so if anything, really, they're defined by a kind of anti-anti-fascism. Uh, they don't openly celebrate the historical heroes of fascism, uh, but rather they talk about the victims of the anti-fascists. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, Meloni as well. You 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 talked about it her a little bit. I uh, I don't really follow politics that much, so I'm asking this question for my own enlightenment. I've heard that after she was elected, she also had to kind of modify some of her statements, especially her anti-immigration statements. Uh, but I don't know how much it's true or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think um, hey, I'll, I'll just give uh, one uh, example, mm. which is um, Georgia Milani has very often historically spoken of the Great Replacement Theory, the idea of a organized ethnic substitution of Italians designed to destroy the integrity of the Italian nation and turn Italians into uh, so it's replaced the population with just kind of atomized slaves uh, of finance capital with no ties of family or territory. Uh, Meloni has often cited the role of George Soros, uh, the um, Hungarian-American um, financier, who she calls a usurer and speculator, um, in orchestrating this supposed conspiracy. Um, since taking office as prime minister, Meloni has not again said these words. Um, but some of her other figures in the party, even leading members, uh, for example, the agriculture minister, uh, Francesco Lolo Brigida, who is also her brother-in-law, 
um, have spoken about the need to resist the ethnic substitution of Italians. Um, so what it seems to me is playing out is basically uh, Fratelli d'Italia want to cast Milani as a kind of international stateswoman uh, who is above the fray of politics and whose statements are more guarded and cautious, uh, while at the same time, more junior members of the government uh, maintain a similar rhetorical pitch and the same ideas uh, in order to uh, play to the party base, in order to maintain the political discussion around uh, their preferred themes. Um, part of this, too, is that Milani very rarely agrees to give interviews or to accept questions from journalists and prefers to issue kind of pre-recorded statements and such like to keep her kind of above the fray. Um, so I think that that you know, this is working very well as a, a kind of communication strategy, uh, because basically what we've seen since Milani was um, elected is that in international media, which is also very um, sort of reflected in um, or taken up by Italian press. We have this idea, which is like, she's grown up. She's serious now. She's less bad than expected. Uh, all of these kind of ideas. Uh, while at the same time, uh, the ideas like, you know, ethnic substitution, the idea that, um, uh, or for example, the idea that, that same-sex parents are destroying the fabric of the family, uh, that surrogacy is worse than paedophilia, these kind of ideas are still regularly circulated by uh, government figures. Uh, so it, in effect, uh, what has happened is that uh, Milani has changed her tone in order to uh, be a respectable figure in foreign capitals and including in the European Union, uh, while the uh, sort of more conflictual element of far-right politics uh, continues apace, uh, but more for domestic consumption. Um, part of this, I think, also is that in general, and you know, as I'm, uh, I'm British, and in British media, there's often this kind of idea that other countries are about to follow Britain out of the European Union, uh, which I think is a wildly overblown uh, idea. I think there's no chance that will happen. Um, and so there's this kind of framing of politics that's become quite normal in recent years, which is this idea that on the one hand, there are pro-Europeans who are open and liberal and cosmopolitan. And on the other hand, there are populist nationalists who are against Europe and want to break it apart. Uh, what we're instead seeing is that people like Milani, but really particularly Milani, are changing the European Union from within to make it more like uh, the far right's vision of, of of how it should be, which is one which is based on um, exclusion, one which is based on the harsh repression of migration, uh, in particular through its outsourcing to third countries, uh, dictatorships in North Africa, or for instance, uh, another key example is uh, Turkey. Uh, this didn't start with Milani, it's not entirely new. It is, of course, largely happening under pressure from the, the rising far right in Europe. And now we're seeing this uh, come to a, a, a head as Milani, a sort of old uh, neo-fascist militant, become post-fascist, become prime minister, uh, is now like leading uh, the European delegation to Tunisia to talk with the local authoritarian president, Said, 
uh, about uh, how Tunisia can re repress uh, migration on behalf of Europe. Uh, Tunisia's president, uh, by the way, is also an exponent of great replacement theory. Uh, so I think that this, these ideas, uh, this worldview can adopt a more uh, professional tone and softer rhetoric and dress itself up as, as pragmatism and European cooperation. Uh, but it is nonetheless uh, an advancing far right. It's the uh, mainstreaming of the far right, not because they're forgetting who they are or what they want, uh, but because the barriers against them are collapsing and other sort of historically more mainstream centre-right or conservative forces uh, no longer have any problem uh, allying with them. And, and are these far-right political organizations in Italy or uh, Brothers of Italy connected to underground groups, radical groups, underground groups who might use violence against their opponents? Uh, yes, um, but I think the the you know the the you know, historically the level of political violence in Italy today is far less even you know it's far less than in the 1970s or 60s never mind uh the, the sort of historical fascist um regime or or the build up to it you know benito mussolini used to say you know the democrats ask me what my political program is i say it's to break the bones of the democrats uh you know that's not what fratelli d'italia say um or indeed are doing um there are certainly incidents of uh, violence, uh, including by Fratelli d'Italia members. Um, earlier this year, uh, there was a, 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 a major news event or scandal, if you will, when um, uh, Fratelli d'Italia's youth group in Florence, um, but really men in their 20s, um, they beat, beat up um, some high schoolers in Florence, uh, who were protesting against them um, issuing leaflets, and you know this was caught on film. Uh, this kind of punishment beating. Um, there's also, you know, beyond that though, there are, um, and I talk about it in the book, there are organized neo-fascist groups that have several thousand members, and which see themselves um, as kind of extra parliamentary. Uh, social movements. Uh, some of the more famous are, of course, Casa Pound, which uh, historically was based uh, or began life as a as a squat in in Rome. Uh, in Milan, there's a, a large group called Lealta Aziane, which probably has a thousand or so members. Uh, there are various kind of football hooligan milieus as well, and you know, in you know, these groups have several thousand members, uh, often. Um, organized in in activities such as um you know like uh, training in martial arts boxing uh put a strong emphasis on physical preparedness uh and these groups have a, a a long record of harassing and beating up um their political opponents and migrants uh, and indeed um there were two cases uh, in the 2010s of casa pound uh sympathizers or members um, murdering um, more or less randomly encountered black people in the street. Um, there's also uh, other cases of, uh, of of murders and terrorist attacks by far right uh, militants uh, during the 2018 election campaign. 
there was a terrorist attack in a town called Macerata uh, by a, uh, a militant called Luca Traini. So these groups, um, they have a kind of um, local level political activity, which the sort of institutional parties don't necessarily have uh, in terms of things like, um, you know, sort of the activities of social centers, um, sort of patrolling their neighborhoods, perhaps things like um, um, monitoring the activity of pro-migrant NGOs, uh, so-called watchdogs. Um, and indeed, they're very important to the kind of galaxy of uh, far-right social movements around things like, um, you know, it depends on it depends on the on the on the particular group. They have different positions, but things like Novax groups, for example, uh, Forza Nuova is a neo-fascist group had an important role in uh, anti-abortion and Catholic family values type uh, movements, and so in these circles that's where we see the link between the institutional electoral right and these far right groups uh very often it's the case that the uh their kind of intellectual uh forums are the same you know in the in the media of these groups for example il primato nazionale which is the magazine of the neo-fascist group casa pound we regularly see fratelli d'italia representatives uh, appearing and interviewed uh, the Casa Pound uh, have have these kind of uh, debate events, uh, which are attended even by the leading figures from the government parties, um, in the you know in the name of this like intellectual exchange on on the far right. Uh, very often, members of these sort of more properly you know explicitly uh, neo-fascist militant groups uh, will take up roles as uh, election candidates, local councillors. Uh, officials in local government with these institutional parties so you know they have different ways of organizing um they have a more grassroots and militant uh you know i'm generalizing a lot here but you know there are these grassroots militant groups which are explicitly neo-fascist and which are openly uh you know the interlocutors, interlocutors allies in various campaigns and potential uh, election candidates for the institutional right parties. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the case, though, that the, um, that the um, and you know, when we've seen the institutional parties in uh, right wing parties in government, they've often helped out these groups a lot in terms of things like giving them spaces in which to organize, uh, allowing them to hold events in 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 uh, sort of publicly sort of, you know, sort of city hall owned spaces, this kind of thing. So they're certainly helping them. Um, but you know, does that necessarily mean that the intention of the parties of government is to build uh, violent street movements in order to crush their opponents? I don't think so. Um, I think, in fact, what's what's really remarkable about the current situation is the, you know, of course, there are many instances of, of that happening, but I, I don't see it as a, as a genuinely mass phenomenon in in the in the in the uh, sort of akin to, to to historical fascism. Um, the, the fundamental fact is that the level of social conflict and mobilization uh, in Italy is is very low. Uh, notably compared even to countries like France, 
Um, and so in a way, uh, the, the sort of post-fascists also rule over what might be called a, a kind of post-democratic society uh, in the sense that the general pitch of uh, political mobilization is very low and plays out very much uh, kind of through media uh, rather than sort of organized uh, mass movements. And uh, you're a historian, and I know that historians may not like uh, speculative questions, but how do you see the political future of Italy? Well, I think the, uh, you know, an important fact here, of course, is the uh, recent uh, death of Silvio Berlusconi. So, you know, his party, Forza Italia, uh, which, you know, was first created in the 1990s, was very much a network of his business associates and personal allies and so on, uh, has long been a structuring force of, of the right in recent years, we've seen it decline, uh, and other sort of uh, leaders emerge on the right. So first Salvini and the Lega, and now Fratelli d'Italia. Uh, I think with his death, uh, it's quite likely that uh, his party or a large part of it could be subsumed into Fratelli d'Italia, and Fratelli d'Italia could uh, complete what Fini hoped to do in the 1990s, which is to create something a bit like an Italian. Uh, version of the U.S. Republican Party, like a broad right-wing party. Um, you know, currently it has to be said, uh, Meloni's position looks very strong. The liberal opposition to her is very weak, uh, and then the the Democrats and the centre-left or five-star, uh, you know, their their vote is holding up okay. But I don't see them, you know, picking fights with the government or able to mobilise opposition. Uh, to even to quite drastic measures, like, for example, the recent uh, abandonment of unemployment benefits. So I think really what we see in Italy uh, is a very low intensity democracy, very low levels of social mobilization. Uh, and the legacy of World War Two, the resistance, uh, in terms of both mass parties uh, and in terms of the kind of anti-fascist identity of the Italian Republic, uh, such as it, uh, to the degree that it ever existed, um, you know, that's really on the decline. Um, so I, you know, I I see in Italy uh, a strong uh, right-wing uh, hegemony, a rise of nationalist identity politics. There are also important counter trends in terms of things like, you know, social liberalization of kind of a social mores uh, around, uh, even around questions, for example, same-sex marriage. Um, of course, um, the number of uh, Italians, or sorry, to, to no, replace that. I mean, the, we've also seen a certain change begin in Italy, which is um, the children of immigrants being born in Italy. Uh, and in that sense, Italy becoming more diverse. Thanks to the right, thanks to parties like the Lega and Fratelli d'Italia, uh, those children of migrants born in Italy um, don't have uh, uh, citizenship. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, the the sort of uh, the politics of ethnic defense and ethnic conception of citizenship are still strong. Um, but I also see a, a strong potential for for a fight over that, and for the the kind of anti-racist uh, victories or or uh, the kind of uh, 
the ideas of integration and non-racial citizenship, which have made some advance in countries like Britain, I think it's quite imaginable that in Italy in future, uh, that will uh, also advance. Of course, it should be said, you know, even among European far-right forces, the kind of explicit racism and homophobia of Fratelli d'Italia isn't necessarily uh, the norm. Uh, you know, we see in countries like the Netherlands, for example, that the far right say, oh, well, it's the it's these Muslims who are coming in who are sexists and homophobes, or it's them who are the racists. Uh, so I think it's quite possible to imagine that Fratelli d'Italia's uh, political ideas will actually start to integrate uh, this kind of more uh, more more kind of cultural uh, conception of 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 nationhood uh, and even of of the family. Um, so I think that there are even within the far right there are certain sort of pulls towards social liberalisation, uh, towards sort of individualistic uh, values. But overall, uh, it's hard to find particular reasons for political hope. Uh, or 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 to believe much in the in the strength of of the left. Uh, that said, you know everything I just said, you know it's uh, it's kind of always a bit easy with Italian politics to to follow the kind of optical illusion whereby the latest leader looks like they have found the kind of winning formula which all of their pre uh, predecessors lacked. You know, so it looks now like. Meloni's doing so well in the polls. She's dominating the right. So, you know, maybe she'll govern for years and years. And there's many uh, people in Italy saying she could be a new Angela Merkel, that she has the power to um, reorient the European project, to pull it to the right, uh, to produce at the European level an alliance of uh, Christian Democrats, conservatives, and her part of the far right. So they have a very ambitious idea of you know Italy playing a more important role in Europe, uh, not in order to uh, sort of uh, leave the euro or overcome uh, the the sort of fiscal limits uh, imposed by in Germany and its constitution, uh, but rather to reframe the European project uh, as a in in more chauvinist uh, terms of civilizational defense. Um, I think we can see some of the contours of that uh, emerging uh, also because of the war and also because of the, the sort of bigger uh, great power uh, rivalry of, of the West against China. Uh, you know, Fratelli d'Italia, they don't seek to make Europe sort of some sort of independent pole in the world. Rather, they want, you know, to be part of the West and governments who are allied to them, notably the government in Poland, uh, certainly agree. Um, if Emmanuel Macron said maybe Europe needs to be more independent uh, in its foreign policy, uh, Morawiecki, the Polish prime minister, who's a Meloni ally, said, no, our, our strategic alternative is to have closer relations with Washington. Um, so really, uh, that's to say that I, I think that you know, what's going to be interesting in the coming years is how far this alliance of Southern European and Central Eastern European far right uh, is able to take over Europe. Of course, there's European elections in June. Um, how far it's able to to ally with forces who have more ambiguous positions on on on, on NATO, uh, for example, uh, Marine Le Pen's 
Rassemblement National has quite different positions on, on the war in Ukraine, as does the Alternative for Germany, the far-right party advancing uh, uh, there. Um, and of course, the other big question is, you know, if Trump wins the presidency, what effect will that have on the far right? Um, I think, in a sense, we've seen a quite different Meloni in office to the one we would have seen if Trump had still been president. Uh, much as you know, we can look at other countries like, for instance, Brazil, and think, you know, would the election have played out the same way uh, if Trump had been uh, president rather than Biden? Um, so I think that you know, there's this kind of um, liberal optimism saying, you know, the peak, the peak of the far right or populist challenge has passed, that things are back to normal, that the EU isn't going to break up, that, you know, there isn't going to be a Ital exit. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this far right uh, certainly hasn't gone away. Uh, and I think that the uh, there's a very real prospect that the uh, that a Trump uh, presidency uh, would also have a, a, a considerable effect in radicalizing the the right in Europe. Uh, David, you just uh, depicted a very very dark and bleak picture. <laughs> I really hope you're wrong, <laughs> but I guess only history will tell. Before ending this conversation, is there any other uh, work or project you're currently working on? Any books we might expect sometime soon? Um, not really, um, because the thing I've been working on recently is the uh, Italian translation of this book, uh, which is going to come out in Italy next month. So I'm very much hoping that uh, it will be an opportunity for uh, for uh, me to uh, pose some of the questions uh, that aren't always being asked uh, in uh, Italian media uh, and uh, to have a more uh, critical and historical perspective on on, on the current party of government. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have no uh, forthcoming publications to announce. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, David Broder, for this fascinating talk. Uh, it was really a pleasure listening to you talking about uh, uh, about the state of politics in Italy. Well, thanks a lot for having me on.